Turn, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7. If you were reading through the Bible and you came to Nehemiah 7, I can just about guarantee your eyes would kind of glaze over and you would slide by this and, uh, until you got to Nehemiah 8 and then start reading again. It's one of those passages. In fact, my first impulse was to just skip it and go on to the next section. But then again, how can you say that you believe that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable and then just throw out 73 verses. So here we see the benefits of a policy of reading through the Bible, studying through the Bible, preaching through the Bible. For today we consider a passage which I suspect no one ever preaches on, except those committed to preaching through a book of the Bible, and they're forced to deal with it. In fact, this passage is so initially daunting that as I'm reading all my different commentaries this week, I realized that one commentary, which is normally quite good, omits this chapter completely, as if there is no Nehemiah 7. But God saw, God saw fit to include this in the pages of his word, and so we're obligated to look at it. And uh, I think as we give attention to it, we'll find that it has something to suggest to us here. Because the text is so unusual and so long, I'm going to read it in two parts. And with one point corresponding to each of those parts. First of all, verses 1 to 3. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some, of, some at their posts, and some near their own houses. This is the easy part. Here we find our first point. God organizes his people. God organizes his people. Here's a truth which is now widely challenged among Christians. These days, church organization is often seen as a necessary evil at best, and maybe even an unnecessary evil, a deadening accommodation to the world's ways. But here in Nehemiah 7, we see God's will for his people expressed in terms of organizational structure. Think about where we are in Nehemiah 7. The walls of the city of Jerusalem are complete, so wouldn't you be saying, finally this project is done, let's get on about our business and get back to our work and our worship. The only other thing we might do is to have a big celebration, maybe a, a dedication service. Well, that doesn't come until chapter 12. First, Nehemiah is concerned with the organizational structure of the people who live in the city of God. So he creates this structure, in these three verses we see it, he creates this structure along three lines. First, he defines some responsibilities. Verse 1, he appoints gatekeepers and singers and Levites. And verse 3, he appoints residents as guards. Now, there had been a similar uh, process uh, during the building phase where uh, everyone was assigned his particular task. But here we see responsibilities that are not just temporary assignments. The city of God was to have some permanent organizational structure. Secondly, we see he appointed leaders. Verse 2 specifically mentions Hanani and Hananiah. 
These leaders were not just selected randomly, they had qualifications. Hanani was uh, Nehemiah's brother, uh, through whom he learned of the terrible uh, distress of the city of, uh, of Jerusalem back when he was in, uh, in uh, uh, Persia. Hanani, according to verse 2, had experience. He was the commander of the citadel, the fortress, and he was known as a man of exemplary integrity and faith. And as Nehemiah appointed these leaders, by definition, he was creating organizational structure. The third thing we see that he did is he established policies, procedures, which regulated the life of the city. We see some of that in verse 3, that people were accustomed to going and coming as they please. There were no walls around the city. They could come and go anywhere. And now there are walls there. And for the good of the city, to preserve the defense that the walls were providing, he now, uh, now regulated that the, uh, that the gates of the city would be opened and closed on a certain schedule. Not just be standing open all night for people to come and go. Now, in all these actions, God was using Nehemiah to create some basic structure in the city of God's people. He defined responsibilities, he anointed leaders, he established policies. God was organizing his people. Now, I wasn't there, but I suspect that these changes were not all that popular. Prior to this, people had been pretty much free to do what they pleased. And now Nehemiah was giving people jobs and appointing leaders to tell people what to do and appointing uh, and, and, and established procedures that regulated their lives. So was Nehemiah overstepping his bounds here? Was the guy who was a great builder now uh, kind of getting a, a big head and, doing, and going beyond his calling? No, I don't think so. Because throughout the Bible, God often organizes his people. Some examples. 1 Corinthians 12 makes quite a point of the different responsibilities of the various members of the church. Responsibilities given by God the Holy Spirit. Different gifts, different kinds of work, different manifestations of the Spirit. Those are not just empty words. The church is to be organized that way. People responsible to do the things that God has gifted them to do. In Acts 6, we see it again. When the widows were being neglected, the answer to the problem was uh, the establishment of some better organization. Qualified people selected and put in charge of this task. Later in the book of Titus, uh, Paul makes quite a point of the necessity of church organization. He sent Titus to Crete to uh, uh, straighten things out there. And the first order of business was to appoint elders who were to be in charge of the church. And then according to Hebrews 13, the policies which those God-ordained leaders uh, established must be followed by the congregation. The point is, this principle still stands. God has, or, has ordained church organization. He ordained the defining of responsibilities, the appointing of leaders, the establishment of policy by those leaders. This is how God worked in Nehemiah's time, and it's how God still works today. Now, I'm not going to say that every bit of church bureaucracy is from the Bible. We know that's not true. I'm not going to say that there's never been any abuse of power. There's been lots of abuse of power. But at the same time, I tell you, the answer is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We are not free to react against those past failures and now throw out the structure of the church altogether, as some always want to do. God calls his church a city, a holy nation, a holy uh, people, a, a, a beautifully built building. All of those analogies imply a lot of organizational structure. And so I call us 
to diligence within that organization which God has established. It requires a certain humility, a recognition that the church is bigger than just me and my ideas, a recognition that I have to submit to to leadership, and a recognition that I have a responsibility that I dare not neglect. If we we Christians are not just independent agents, if we are in Christ, we are part of the body, part of the structure. We dare not despise it because God ordained it. God has a history of organizing his people. That's the first point. Then we come to verses 4 to 73, the larger, more troublesome part of this text. This is a record from the archives of ancient Israel that's inserted here. Mostly it's a list of names that you can't pronounce and neither can I. But hidden in there are a few pieces of information for us to think about as we search for the point of it all. And fortunately, we have the rest of the Bible to help us out. So I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make a point of leaving out some of these names rather than just struggle through mispronunciation, picking up with verse 4. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilsham, Mizpereth, Bigvi, Nehem, and Baana. The list of the men of Israel. And then we have, from verse 8 down to verse 25, a list of the clans with how many people in each clan, from a couple thousand down to less than a hundred. Picking up down in verse 26, we have the the people listed by hometowns. They've been in Bethlehem and Netophah. And we have each one of those listed and how many people from each of the ancient hometowns down through verse 38. Verse 39, we have the priest. And uh, they're, they're listed by the priestly families and how many from each of those priestly families. Verse 43, the Levites, the descendants of Joshua through uh, Cadmiel, through the line of Hadvayah, and the 74 of them. Then we have the singers, the descendants of Asaph, 148 of those. The gatekeepers, descendants of several, several families of gatekeepers. And then the temple servants, in verse 46, and descendants of, of, of key leaders, the various clans. At verse 57, the descendants of the servants of Solomon and those families. And the total of the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, according to verse 60, was 392. And then in verse 61, we have a a, a list of people that came up from five towns who could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And we have the descendants of these three three leaders. And then we also have a bunch of people claiming to be priests. But according to verse 64, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor therefore ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. Then kind of a summary statement, verse 66. The whole company, number 42,360, besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, they also had 245 men and women singers, There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 drachmas of gold, 50 bowls, 
and 530, and, and, and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work, 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. The total was given by the rest of the people was 20,000 drachmas of gold and 2,000 minas of silver and 67 garments for priests. The priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. A statement from the archives there. So what should we learn from that? Well, it's a bit mysterious. I think we're dependent upon the rest of the scripture helping us here. But let me suggest a second truth here. And that is that among God's people, membership matters. Among God's people, membership matters. Every 10 years in this country, a census is taken. We're all urged to be diligent in this matter and to fill out these forms and send them back. It's of great importance to the life of the nation. And if indeed you forget or neglect or don't want to do that, they will show up at your door because it's so important. But interestingly, very few people really object to that. There's some backlash against the long form, which is a bit uh, intrusive. But generally, people seem to know that a census is just part of the organization of this country, that, uh, that the Constitution itself gives the government the right to register its people, to count its people, and to know something about them. But every time I fill out a census form, I can't help but think, what if the church did this? What if we sent out a, a form to all the members of the chapel asking for that same information? There would be a terrible backlash. I am certain of it. Who do you think you are? You see, we live in a day when not just excessive church organization, we certainly have bureaucracy that boggles the mind at churches, but not just excessive church organization, but even the idea of church membership is widely neglected or even disdained. So people make membership commitments to churches, and then they get mad if anybody ever asks them what they're doing or why they're doing it or why they never show up. People move from one place to another, and they never get around to uh, telling people that we're not members there anymore. We've joined a different church. Many people never join a church at all. They attend for a long time, but they just never join a church. In Christian circles today, membership generally means almost nothing. In fact, in many people's eyes, the whole notion of accountability to a church is just totally foreign to their faith. But I would say that Nehemiah 7 argues against that modern mindset. Among God's people, membership matters. Notice several significant things from these verses. First of all, it was God's idea to register the people. Now folks, God knows who belongs to him. He doesn't need to send out census takers to find out. Paul writes, this foundation stands firm. The Lord knows his own. Indeed, if your name is not recorded in God's book of life, if you're not in right relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what church you're a member of, it won't help you. And you can't fool God. He knows who really believes. He knows who really belongs to him. So isn't it enough, and this is how some would argue, it's enough to have my name written on God's infallible list in heaven 
What difference does it make whether my name's on a roll of some church, which admittedly will never be completely accurate? Makes sense. Except that we read in verse 5, God put it into my heart to register the people. The idea of a register of people did not come from some worldly desire on Nehemiah's part to count heads and see how great of a governor he was. This was God's idea. And I would argue that the same God has ordained personal accountability for his church in our day, accountability which presupposes the identification of who is a member of a church and who is not. Consider some parallels in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, we are told how many people were added to the church that day of Pentecost and, 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 and later on uh, in, in, a, in a later chapter. Again, how many people? Now you think about it, folks. Somebody there was making a list and counting heads. In Acts 20, Paul tells the elders, shepherd the flock which the, of, over whom the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, an elder, a bishop. Somehow they had to know who those people were. It was a meaningless exhortation unless they knew who exactly are we to be shepherding. What are their names? In Hebrews 13, we're told to obey our leaders. And they're told that they will give an account for us. Well, that presupposes that we know exactly who it is we're supposed to obey. And that they know who exactly they will give an account for. Must you obey everybody who calls himself an elder in Christ's church or a pastor? I don't think so. And must I, as a pastor, give an account for everybody that walks in the door, whether I ever meet them or not? I don't think so. Such accountability in the church was God's idea. Therefore, membership matters. Second, we see here that membership in God's people demonstrates a continuity with the past. Verses 6 to 73 is a roster reproduced from Ezra chapter 2 of all the people who returned from the exile in Babylon. First, they are listed by 12 leaders, then by families and towns and priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants, etc. <coughs> now, the question is why does this matter? Why does it matter? Because God's people don't just come from nowhere. We're not free to just decide to call ourselves the people of God, to proclaim ourselves a church. God made covenant promises to specific people in the past, and unless our roots can be traced back to those promises, we have no salvation. We're kidding ourselves. Periodically, the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at my door, and it always amazes me that like other cults, it doesn't bother them a bit. That they have no continuity with the church for 2,000 years. Oh, but God's people stand in a long line of the faithful, which stretches all the way back to the covenant promises God made to Abraham. Augustine said it bluntly, he who does not have the church as her mother does not have God as their father. 
You see, these people in Jerusalem were not just isolated individuals of the Jewish race who happened to find themselves in the same uh, place. Now, these are the company of the redeemed. These are the covenant community who God sent into exile and who God has now delivered from exile. They were defined by families and calling and hometowns and by their function in the worship of the community. And we too stand in continuity with the past. We may be from different lines of physical ascent. We certainly are. But we all have our roots in the same gospel, which was handed down to us through the apostles who were hand-chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By our ingrafting into Christ, we are connected to the church in all times and all places. And if we aren't, we're not a true church at all. Church membership matters. We stand stand accountable to and in continuity with the church which has gone before us. There is only one true church. Not with some denominational name. One body of God's people in lots of congregations. Third thing we see here is that membership is more than just name on a roll. It's not just who has family roots. This registration of people in Nehemiah's day involved commitment and faith. We have to see these verses in light of the, the things to come in the next chapters. For the actual registration spoken of here didn't actually happen until chapter 10. So some things happen next. In chapter 8, the people met to hear the word of God and the law of God and submit to it. In chapter 9, they met to confess their sins in continuity with the sins of their fathers. And then finally, the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, the covenant renewal was made. Quote, now because of all of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And when this commitment was made, it was not just descendants from certain families. It was those who had living faith, including the new converts, Quote, those who had separated themselves to the, from the people of the lands unto the law of God. I just wanted to tell you, church membership matters, but it was never designed to be an, an empty name on a roll. Church membership is the accountability of the people of God who believe in Jesus, who confess their sins and their need of grace, who claim his covenant promises made generations ago and commit themselves to accountable discipleship as a part of the people of God, the holy city, the body of Christ. That kind of membership matters. These days we think of commitments in terms of contracts. Contracts tend to be cold and impersonal as they specify obligations agreed upon by each party. And when they're not kept, well, the contract is broken. It's over unless somebody's hurt so bad that they sue. Even on a more informal level, we make appointments. Those are kind of informal contracts. But if you fail to show up, what happens? The doctor goes to his next patient. The plumber goes to his next, uh, his next service call. It, 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 it doesn't matter that much. But you see, Christ has not called us to a contract, whether formal or informal. He has established a covenant and brought us into his covenant. Now that's more like the relationship between a parent and a child or a husband and a wife. If your child doesn't show up for dinner 
or your wife doesn't show up for dinner. You don't just say, oh, well, I guess something came up and go on without them. No, you go looking for them. Because you don't have a contract with them. You're in covenant with them. And so God, God's covenant demands loving accountability, continued relationship, and unconditional commitment to love and serve one another within the bonds of that covenant community that God has established. That's the significance of membership in a church. Nothing less than a covenant with God and his people. And among God's people, membership matters. Well, not only this chapter long and hard to read, it suggests things about God's people that aren't very popular in our day. Church organization and membership. Those things appear to many as unattractive and unnecessary encumbrances. But God is committed to those things. Folks, sometimes structures which we think are unattractive and unnecessary prove to be more important than we first thought. I think of another structure, not an organizational structure, a physical structure, which was built for an international exposition in the last century and was called monstrous by the citizens of the city in which it was built. They wanted it torn down. It was so bad. But from the moment its architect first conceived it, he took pride in it, and he loyally defended it from those who wished to destroy it. He knew it was destined for greatness. And sure enough, today that structure stands as the primary landmark of the city of Paris. Its architect was Alexander Eiffel, who built his famous tower in 1889. Once thought to be ugly and unnecessary, its glory has outlived its critics. And in the same way, we're struck by God's loyalty to this structure, his church. Some think it's outdated. Some think it's ugly. Many think it is unnecessary. But God ordained it, and he remains loyal to it, as we must be to his holy city, his church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in a culture, in a, a Christian subculture, that uh, doesn't think much of the church as an organization. The larger culture assumes that it's a, a mess and wants nothing to do with it. And we Christians tend to assume that we're above it all and we get embarrassed by its frailties and its faults. But when we look in your word, we realize, Lord, that you haven't just called us as isolated individuals out doing our own thing. and It's just me and Jesus and that's all that matters. That you've called us into a covenant relationship with you that involves being bound in covenant with your people, with structure, accountability and history and hope for the future. Refine our thinking that we think like you think and not so much like our culture thinks. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your bulletins, there is a, an affirmation of faith.